You know, I don't think I say this very often, but I, I love this church, and you guys are never going to get rid of me. That, do, that doesn't sound terrible, and I, uh, I mean, uh, no, but, no, I mean, if you guys want to get rid of me, you can, I'm just saying. But um, this morning, we had the privilege of, of, of speaking at the young adult service at Garden Grove, and I learned one thing about myself. I would make a terrible young adult pastor. It was just like, Kara, can I say what you said? She said, uh, I could tell you weren't yourself. I'm like, <laughs> so now I get to preach the same sermon to you all this morning. So anyway, I just want to say this is a great, I, I just, I love this church family. Thank you all for being here. We, I just love you all. And so I'm just, uh, I, I, you know, whenever we get to do those kinds of experiments, um, it's just a reminder that, that this feels like home. And I'm so thankful for that. So uh, let's pray as we get started here. God, you are gracious above all. We are thankful that in your infinite wisdom and in your infinite grace, you've given us a book full of stories and narratives to show us what it means not only that you love us, but what it means for us to love like you. So as we look at this story that we've read hundreds of times, we ask that you would give us new eyes to see what perhaps we've missed. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So, have you ever noticed that emotions are a tricky thing in our lives? So, on the one hand, positive emotions are really good. Like, positive emotions is why we fall in love with someone. Positive emotions is why we feel like we can fly sometimes, or how we're able to do well in sports or do well in a presentation or at work. Like, like pos- the power of positive emotions can actually do a lot of good for us. But on the other hand, if you've ever noticed that there's also the power of negative emotions. And if we wallow too long in the negative, it ends up affecting how we feel. It ends up affecting how we interact with others. And, and the negative power of negative emotions also gives rise to feelings like hate, dislike, disdain. And so on the one hand, we can feel really good and positive and loving, and yet the very next moment, we can feel these negative feelings of hate and disdain. You know, the dark side of hate is that the more we dislike someone or the more we think we hate someone, the easier it is for us to justify why we don't like them. You know, when we see someone as different than ourselves, someone as other, it's easy for us to think about them in negative ways without us realizing that the Christian response to others is always love and never hate. Now, I know I don't have to say this, and I know I've said this before, but, you know, we are living at a time in our country where it just seems like everyone is hateful. Like, maybe not our friends. Sorry, I'm still getting over a cold. Like, maybe not our friends, but if you're still on Facebook, which I am because our church has a Facebook page, even though it's not updated regularly, but we try. Um, But, like, it's like you're either on one side of an issue or the other side of an issue. Have you noticed that? And, like, if you're on opposite sides of the person that posts something, you're just like, oh, I'm going to unfollow them because you don't want to unfriend them because you're still kind of friends, but you unfollow them and they don't know the difference, right? And that's what we're at in like this, like this tipping point in our country where there's just like so much division and so much hate. And the reality is that the truth isn't on one side or the other side. That, let's just be 100%. It's not on either side. The truth is somewhere in the middle 
But it's so hard for us to, to kind of be the first one to swallow our pride and say, this may be what I believe, but let me listen to you in a genuine and humble inquiry. And as followers of Jesus, this message is for you only if you want to follow the way of Jesus. Is that we must be like Jesus that reaches out and interacts with those that are other than us. That is the only way that Jesus shows us. And this morning, I want us to look at a story in the book of Mark chapter 10. I, I, I will admit, I cheated this week. And uh, I got a little bit of help from the sermon from our young adults. So on Wednesday nights, every other Wednesday night, the young adults meet. And I was lucky enough, or God's providential grace, is that we went over this story. So they helped me a little bit. So this is not just my sermon, but it's the sermon of your young adults here this morning. So let's look at Mark chapter 10, verse 46. I love hearing those pages turn. They came to Jericho... And as he, Jesus, and his disciples, and a large crowd were leaving Jericho, Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, a blind beggar, was sitting by the roadside. Now, if you remember last week, we talked about how much the Jews and the Samaritans disliked each other, right? They hated each other, and we discussed last week that a good religious Jewish person in the, in the first century would never go through Samaria, but instead they would go all the way around so that they wouldn't even set foot in their country, now, what this first verse is telling us is that they would, when they would go around Samaria, they would all pass through the city of Jericho, all right? So here's what's interesting about this. The story tells us that Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, which will come, make a difference later in the story, a blind beggar was sitting by the roadside. He was outside of the city of Jericho, and he was waiting, forget this, good religious people to come by because a blind beggar in the first century would live off of the alms and the charity and the donations of people who had more means. All right, so this blind guy, he was blind, but he wasn't dumb. So he knew, just like some of our friends who wait outside of the, like, the freeways because they know you have to stop there, like, they knew they were there waiting for the generosity of the people who were religious and believed in God. You know, he wasn't waiting somewhere else. He was waiting where he knew that people who believed in God, it was their duty, it was their mission, and it was their commitment to God that would then allow them to give money or food or any kind of help to this blind beggar. And so he was smart, and he was waiting there. Verse 47 tells us this. When he, Bartimaeus, heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Verse 48, many sternly ordered him to be quiet. One Bible translation says that some people rebuked him strongly. In essence, they scolded him, basically telling him, hey, be quiet. Don't say anything. Don't be a nuisance. Just get out of here because you're just a blind beggar. So the same people that this blind beggar was hoping would have charity on him were the very same people, these religious people, who were saying, Bartimaeus, get out of here because you're just going to be a nuisance. And Jesus doesn't need to worry or waste any time on you. Now, as we know in the first century, if you were blind or crippled or handicapped or any kind of physical illness, leprosy, whatever it was, we know that in the first century, if you were one of those people, everyone around you, or the religious people, because the non-religious people, it was irrelevant to them, but the religious people, 
assumed that either you or your father or your father's father or someone in your paternal line sinned and now God was punishing you for the sins of those that came before you or your sin. Right? So, so what we find is this blind beggar is clothed in shame. People have ostracized him. People have marginalized him. And people don't really want to get caught up with him because they don't want other people to look at them and judge them for saying, well, he condones their sin because he's friends with them, so people would just stay away from him. So this blind beggar was not already suffering from, from being blind. He was suffering from having to rely on other people to help him, to help him, help him get around. You know, I don't think they had Braille back then, so people had to help them to read and to do all these things. And this blind man was already shamed by his community. He was on the outskirts of town. He was seen as like a capital S sinner. Not like us when we say like, oh, well, we're all sinners. We all sin. We know. We try hard not to, but we know we're sinners. No, like he was like a capital S sinner, like the the scarlet letter type of sinner where everybody knew that somewhere along the line, and, and they may not know what it was, but they just assumed that he was a sinner. And so he then was categorically other. He was someone we didn't want to be around today. You know, and I'd like to say that 2,000 years of growth has taught us not to be that way, but I think in some ways we still do that today. I think if we're honest and if we look at our lives, there's probably people in our lives that we've categorized as others. Maybe they're believers or not believers or they believe differently, and we make these judgments about other people Because they may not look like us or they may not live like us and we make these judgments and we feel justified in making these judgments because they say, well, if the Bible says it this way and they're that way, then they must not be a part of God's family. But the way of Jesus is a constant reminder that we must follow the example of Jesus. The example of Jesus is that he would enter into human history and that he would forgive even your worst sins. You see, this blind man was shamed. And you know, like, if someone keeps telling you, and and we see this in kids, but like, if someone keeps telling you a negative narrative about yourself, eventually you begin to believe it. Have you ever experienced that or know someone who has? We see that in kids, right, when they don't have as much self-esteem and sometimes we look at how the parents treated them. It's because their parents kind of like tore them down a lot. Also the opposite, kids that have a lot of good self-esteem, parents built that up in them. And so what ends up happening is for this blind beggar, I believe that what happens is that he begins to believe not just that his shame is real, but that he is not worthy He is not good enough. He is not worthy of being in the presence of Jesus. He is not worthy of God's love or forgiveness or the atonement that Christ gives us. I bet that he started to believe that. And that's why it's so powerful in in verse 48 when the Bible says, He cried out even more loudly, Son of David, have mercy on me. You see, he could not be shamed anymore than he already had been. But he also realized that he was not going to ask for forgiveness or be ashamed at calling out to, the son, to, to Jesus because he knew that if Jesus stopped for him, what he stood to gain far outweighed any other embarrassment or shame that he could have felt. Like he was literally calling even more attention to himself. 
Someone that was a blind beggar in the first century would be off on the side of the road, trying not to get in people's ways because they already saw him as a nuisance. But he draws even more attention to himself, knowing that people would see him. Knowing that people would say, like, whoa, I wonder what his sin was, right? Or what, what did his dad do or his grandpa do, right? Like, he's like, it didn't matter to him. Because, if, because the thought that Jesus would stop and talk to him far outweighed anything in the world. You know, and you and I are confronted with that very same story today. Because if we're honest and we look at our own lives, there is sin in each one of our lives. And this may just be me, but every once in a while I feel or I sense or I see within myself something that I think to myself, like, am I worthy of God's love? Now the answer is, well, yes, biblically. But we do that. We get into these ruts of not feeling good enough, not feeling like we're holy enough, not feeling like we've committed enough time to God, not feeling like we've done enough in service. And sometimes we begin to believe that because we're not good enough, God's not going to be there for us. But what this story shows us is that even for those who have the most egregious sins or for those who have the heaviest shame, God is still one who loves you no matter what. See, the story of the blind beggar, when, when he cries out to Jesus and he says, have mercy on me, he's not just asking to be healed. Well, let's read that part, actually, before I jump on it. No, yeah, let, okay, verse 49. <laughs> Jesus stood still and said, call him here. Now, this is like when you spend enough time in a, in a certain passage in Scripture, and which is what I encourage you all to do, the more you read and reread something, the more little details pop up. And this is one of those like really funny but sad details in verse 49, the second part. So when Jesus says, call him here, then they, presumably his disciples or other believers, right? The people that were rebuking him and telling him to be quiet, they called the blind man saying, hey, take heart. Like, which was like a Bible way of saying is like, yo, you got an audience with him, buddy. Like, they're all like pumping him up, you know? And it's just like these very same people who in one moment had negative feelings are now forced to have positive feelings because of the action of Jesus. You see, you may feel like your positive action or interactions with others, that you may not feel that you swallowing your pride and trying to meet someone in the middle ground is going to change very much, but other people see how you live your life. And Jesus shows us an example that he was unwilling to walk past the man who desired a presence with him, and it changes the lives of the people who were judging him. You know, the mission of this church is to be the message of Jesus in actions and in words. And if we are going to embody the message of Jesus, then we must live like Jesus did. And we must go to those who the society has says are other and enter into relationship with them, regardless of what will do to your reputation. So they said, take heart, get up, he's calling you. On the one hand, this blind man was filled with shame. But on the other hand, these other guys were shameless. Because they didn't stop to think, well, if Jesus is okay with him, we should be. But they were just trying to be on the winning team. Verse 50 says, throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and he came to Jesus. Then Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? Now let's just stop there for a second. Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? If you remember the context of the story is that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. Jesus was on the way to lay his life down 
to lay his life down for you and for me. Like why we gather here this morning on Sabbath and worship God is what Jesus was on his way to do in Jerusalem. He had an important mission to accomplish, but he wasn't so narrow focused that he didn't pay attention to the people that needed his presence. So Jesus stops even when the weight of the world was on his shoulders. And he asks, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man says, my teacher, let me see again. Now, if we just run past that response, we would miss something. He says, let me see again. Which means that Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, at some point in his life could see. And for one reason or another, he lost his sight. So now think about this. If people see a a blind person, they see him as someone who committed a sin. And if they knew that he he had vision at some point in his life and then he loses it, that's like even more like fuel for the gossip, right? Like what did he do? But it wasn't just that he wanted to see again. Because if we understand what he is asking, he is saying, take away my shame. Take away my sin. He was asking for forgiveness because he began to believe that he was a capital S sinner. And so when he comes to Jesus, he says, take away my sin. Take away my shame. You know, so many of us, we, we all as humans have carry some sort of shame. We do. That's just a normal part of our human existence. And so many times in our lives, we try to, you know, cover our shame Right? The Bible calls it a nakedness. Shame is like nakedness. That's in the story of Adam and Eve in the very beginning of the Bible. It says that God covered their shame, their nakedness. And so when we are standing before God, we feel naked because we realize that God can see everything. And what we do is we try to cover ourselves with good works or with the right words or with whatever it is. And we try to cover ourselves with it when all Jesus is asking is for us to be in his presence. Isaiah reminds us that God covers your shame. Isaiah prophesizes before Jesus was even around that it is Jesus who cleanses you, Jesus who covers you with a robe of righteousness. And this is what Jesus is showing us in the first person when he stops for this beggar. You know, it's interesting that in contrast to this story, if we were to look at Mark chapter 10, Verse 35, oh yeah, we got time. So Mark chapter 10, verse 35. I just want to show you a contrast here. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, disciples, top dogs of the disciples, they came to Jesus and they said to him, listen to what these guys, oh man, they learned over time, but listen to what they said. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Like that sounds kind of rude, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm like, sometimes I'm like stern about what I want to Jesus, but never this word, right? And, and it's interesting because then Jesus says, what is it that you want me to do for you? And then they say, we want to sit at your right and at your left. Jesus asks two different, pe- two different sets of people the same exact question. You see, on the one hand, the disciples, they wanted a position of power and authority. They let their egos get to them. And Jesus says, well, I, you know, I don't know what to tell you. It's not for me to tell you who's going to sit at my right or my left. 
But then in the very next story, we see that Jesus asks this blind beggar, what do you want me to do for you? Here's where the contrast matters. James and John were one of the 12 disciples. They were handpicked by Jesus. And for a lot of the religious people, well, the new religious people, so not the old Jewish people, but the, the, new, the Jewish people that were believing that Jesus was the Messiah, like among them, the, these 12 disciples were like, you wanted to be a part of that group. They were the in-group. They were the leaders. They would be the ones who led the church after Jesus went to heaven. So like this was like people that you wanted to be around. And everyone expected them to have an audience with Jesus. Everyone expected them to be, you know, have these prayers and conversations with Jesus. And Jesus doesn't grant them what they ask. Jesus doesn't give them that. But in the very next story, Jesus goes to the people that society has said, you don't even get to get an audience with Jesus, blind beggar. Just get out of the way and let us go past you. And Jesus stops for the one that that was in the lowest class of society. And Jesus, the Bible says, in verse 52, go, your faith has made you well. And immediately he regained his sight and followed him on the way. Jesus grants the request of those that the religious people had castigated and ostracized, but he does not grant what the disciples wanted because all they wanted was power. Jesus is flipping everything on its head. Like, do you guys see that or is it just me because I spent all week with this? And if we are to follow the way of Jesus, especially in a climate that is so divisive, we are to extend, as they say, an olive branch to the other side and say, I may not agree with you, but I'm willing to have a conversation because I guarantee you the truth is somewhere in the middle. Right? What is that expression? There's his truth. What is that? There's his truth, her truth, and then the truth. Is that the right? Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Something like that, yeah. Yeah. So. <laughs> And that's what we are to be as Christians, especially as a Seventh-day Adventist Christian in this world. We should be like, like the ones that have the most example of what it means to share the love of Jesus to anyone and everyone. We as followers of Jesus, as Seventh-day Adventists, at our very best, we are to be like the Jesus who goes to the blind and to the oppressed and to the marginalized and says, Jesus is for you and so am I. But it's not just for them, it's for us. As a church, you know, there is always conflict in a church. And as a church, we are supposed to reach to each other and say there is forgiveness, there is generosity, and there is empathy. You see, the message of Jesus is not just for what happens on the outside, but it's what happens in these four walls of the church. What Jesus shows us here is that Jesus can forgive the worst offenses You know, this man was asking for physical sight, and Jesus healed his physical blindness, but Jesus wants to heal our spiritual blindness. Jesus wants us to be in his presence. He wants us not to be ashamed, but to come before him. The Bible says, like, we can come boldly before the throne of grace, not to make demands, but boldly because we know that we belong in the presence of Christ. So when Jesus asks you this morning, what do you want from me? What do you want me to do for you? He is inviting you into a relationship and a relationship where prayer is central. You see, the prayer of faith is that you trust God once you let out what you're saying. You trust that God will do what is best for you. Knowing that God 
may very well not give you the thing you ask for. See, the prayer of faith is one where once it's released, you put it in the hands of the one who loves you more than anyone else. Faith is about trust. And that's why faith is so difficult. Because it is so hard to trust someone that we can't see right in front of us. But that's what makes faith so powerful in the mystery of God, is that God has promised that he would be faithful to us. And it's okay if we don't physically see Jesus in front of us. You know, one of the reasons I still believe in Jesus and I still believe in God, mostly because of what has happened in my own life, but because this book is thousands of years old, like, well, as a complete version, like 2,000 years old, but even before that, thousands of years, and like, it's still here. There's other books, other writings, other stories that don't have the prominence that Scripture has, and, and they don't always agree, and there's like different stories, and like it, but, but the whole story is always going in one direction, and I truly believe that God is wanting to be the one who is the God of the Bibles and wants to be the God of your life in every instance. So we are like the blind beggar. We are asking God to have mercy on us because what we're asking is for God to make us whole to forgive our sins, to atone, and to allow us not to be defined by the sins in our lives or by the things that bring us shame, but to be defined by being in the presence of God as one who is counted among the saved.